This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, the place where tech workers come to get smarter about their money. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to take you beneath the surface level and cover traditional personal finance topics in a way that is both approachable and relatable, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners. Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about Equity Comp. More specifically, we're talking about the opportunities presented to those who receive equity as part of their total comp when the stock market is down and some ways to recognize and take advantage of those opportunities when they occur. Equity is an important aspect of any tech worker's overall compensation. This employee perk gives you a stake in the company, an incentive to perform. Not only should it be negotiated upon hire, but also leveraged to its full potential as your career progresses. When times are good, it's comfortable to continue taking shares. But what happens when the market sours? The looming recession is forcing some workers to navigate falling stock prices for the first time in their careers. While it's tempting to mitigate risk by increasing cash compensation, it often provides marginal lifestyle comfort to high-earning workers. In contrast, continuing to receive equity has advantages that are often overlooked. Whether you have stock options or restricted stock units, today's episode provides an alternative narrative to the doom and gloom of financial downturns. We'll explore how to identify bear market opportunities as well as strategic advice for those debating on how to manage their options. Through this lens, you'll be well-equipped to weather recessions and make the most of your equity compensation. My guest today, Brooke Harley, is no stranger to this show. She's the founder and CEO of Class Rebel, an online e-learning company that offers affordable and relevant courses on wealth building, angel investing, and the basics of managing equity. Through her work with Class Rebel, Brooke levels the playing field by making these investing topics available to anyone who wants to learn. She believes that anyone receiving equity comp should view bear markets as a moment of opportunity rather than a moment for panic. Prior to founding Class Rebel, Brooke worked as a corporate attorney, venture investor, and startup board member. So needless to say, she knows her stuff when it comes to this topic. So with that brief introduction, welcome back, Brooke Harley, to the Tech Money Podcast. Thank you so much for having me back, Malcolm. We're talking about one of my favorite things. So looking forward to today. Yeah, the audience can't see us, right? Because we're in our virtual studio here, but there's a big smile on your face, even as I'm reading through the intro (laughs) and you're hearing what we're gearing up to talk about. So clearly this is like the thing that gets you going. For sure. I get really excited 
because we haven't had a time like this since, you know, the 2008, 2009 recession. And mm-hmm. I look forward to getting into like, this is the time is this is the opportunity for employees that have lost their jobs and are looking to restart. It's a huge opportunity right now. Getting laid off could be the best thing that ever actually happened to you. Okay. I am going to ask you to dig in super deep on that one because that sounds absolutely absurd to anyone who just lost their job and they're trying to figure out, you know, which end is up. And so later on in this conversation, we're definitely going to circle back to that one. But one thing I wanted to ask you about that you just said was this is probably the best opportunity since 2008, 2009. And I just want to drill down there for a second and ask in what way? Because a lot of people think about 2008, 2009 as like this terrible time of carnage as far as the markets were concerned and that sort of thing. But what do you mean by it's the best time since then? Yeah, well, I'll share my experience, how I've experienced recessions and, Mm -hmm. you know, use Airbnb as an example and, and Lululemon. So why recessions are the best time, I think, to negotiate equity comp is because a lot of times, let's talk public companies for a minute. Public companies, their stock price can fall precipitously with the market, just an overall market sentiment. Valuations are down. But if there was never anything financially, fundamentally going wrong in the company, what can happen is the stock price can recover fairly quickly in a matter of 12 months, 24 months, 36 months. And I think you're already seeing an example of that in Airbnb. Mm -hmm. But if you back up to 2008, 2009, Lululemon, where I had worked for the CFO, had just gone public in 2007. As we know, the Great Recession hit in 2008, and it Mm -hmm. pushed Lululemon's stock price down to $10, the lowest it would ever, ever go. And that's the timing when I came in. And I was really focused on negotiating as many options as I could because I'd been trained as a lawyer to draft stock option plans, but I'd only been in the stands. I'd never been on the field. So starting my job at Lululemon was a chance to be on the field. So I negotiated as many stock options as I could, realizing the strike price had fallen quite a bit. But there was never anything fundamentally going wrong at Lululemon at the time. And so as the market recovered and the market gained more confidence, Lululemon's stock recovered very quickly and then shot past any of its highs. And so within maybe three years, the stock price was eight times what I was granted my strike price at. So it created a fair amount of wealth in a short time frame. And when I look at Airbnb, just for an example, mm-hmm. that's exactly what's happening right now. So if you join the company, Airbnb, let's say you got laid off from your tech job, you quickly got picked up by Airbnb. They gave you some stock options, let's say, in late December. While your strike price would have been about 82 bucks. Five weeks later, the trading price is already 44% higher just in five weeks. Mm -hmm. And so real wealth has been created. Real life-changing wealth has already been created for anyone that joined in December. Imagine what could happen as they vest over four years. Is it so crazy to think that Airbnb stock price is going to go up to 400 or 500 just in a couple of years? I don't think that's so wild. and that would create a life-changing amount of wealth for those kind of people. So we're seeing these exact conditions. Airbnb is a perfect example. I want to point out the fact that you're not using the phrasing life-changing wealth lightly or as hyperbole, because this has literally been the story that you live that actually changed the trajectory of your life. 
I just point that out because I want people listening to understand that it's not coming from a place of, you know, the textbook says that you should do X, Y, or Z, or this is a theory that Brooke has. Like, this is literally the path that you have walked yourself. And so now you're turning around and preaching the gospel to those who will listen. You know, and I don't mind sharing that I'm 44, Mm -hmm. turning 45 this year. And when I take a good hard look at where I've amassed wealth and where I've worked hard, those things don't necessarily go together. Mm. Any wealth that I've built has really come from stock options, Mm -hmm. real estate, and investing in private companies. It has nothing to do with me trading time for money. In fact, when I look at the returns on my jobs that I've had in law or working at Lululemon, I've earned a fraction, a fraction Mm -hmm. of the money that I've earned investing in different markets. So, you know, we all have to look at trading time for money Mm -hmm. versus investing. I am reminded of a quote that I can't even remember who I heard say it to give them proper attribution, but it stung really hard when I when I heard it, which was that the working class trades hours for dollars and wealthy people trade ideas for dollars. And once I heard that, I couldn't unhear it. Like it was just one of those things that now every single time I'm like considering something, any decision related to money, like that rings true. And so that's kind of in the direction you're talking about where, you know, on this show, even I've shared with folks that in my day job as a financial planner, one thing that I've noticed is our wealthiest clients aren't people who saved their way to being well off. Like you can be really diligent about saving and max out your retirement plans and even throw a few extra dollars in, you know, your brokerage account or your savings account or whatever from, let's just say your 30s all the way through retiring in your mid 60s. So that 35 year savings and investing time period will land you somewhere in the two to $3 million range when it's all said and done with market returns and your diligent saving, which is nothing to sneeze at, right? That still puts you in a pretty high tier as far as wealth creation is concerned compared to the rest of the country, let alone the rest of the world. But if you think about the folks who have tens of millions of dollars or just $10 million in net worth by the time they reached the same point, they were closely attached to some form of wealth creation. Either it was they owned real estate that appreciated over that 35-year period because they happened to be in the right place at the right time and owned real estate in a place that did really well, right? It got built up, it got gentrified, it got developed, and it paid off for them. Mm -hmm. And or there's somebody who was really closely attached to the wealth creation inside of a business. Whether yep. you were, you know, employee number 10 and you happened to be an executive assistant or you were CEO, CFO, director of dot 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 and you owned a significant portion of equity in the shop. So to the point that you're making, I think it's really important that people understand that like there's nothing wrong with saying I'm going to follow the path of saving and investing the way that all of the textbooks and the blog sites and everything else tell me I I am to do it. But if you are a person who wants to enjoy like significant life-changing wealth, it's going to take something separate from that. I agree with you completely. And I think the one element we need to discuss is developing a bit of a risk appetite. Mm -hmm. And so to even get stock options in a fast-growing company like Lululemon, I actually had to give up my law career. Mm. And so I completely left and took Mm -hmm. a risk that I would be better off working for a big growing company than practicing law. And that ended up being true. And then taking a risk, putting 
you know, as much money as you can, say, into a real estate market like Vancouver that you think is growing, mm-hmm. right? Taking some money and risking in a startup like Native Shoes. So I think risk is involved in wealth building as well. Yeah. And the reason this show even came about is that you and I were chatting one day and you mentioned, you know, you just had a really strong feeling that because recessions offer one of the best opportunities, you know, for folks who receive equity to be aggressive in this moment, to be risk on in this moment, there was a message folks needed to hear, right? And so I, I know that this is one that you you believe very deeply and are wanting to share it with those who will listen. But one of the things that I'm also thinking about is in the face of a recession, folks tend to fall out of love with their equity, right? I mentioned this in my intro, folks are starting to opt for a larger portion of their pay in cash. Even those people who've reached a point where each additional dollar they receive has a diminishing value in comparison to their overall financial situation, right? Why do you think that is? Well, I think that the type of employee most likely to start gravitating towards cash at this moment was an employee who got granted equity comp in a bull market. Mm -hmm. And so what they've experienced now is they were granted all this equity. They felt at the time that it had a lot of financial promise for them. But in fact, they were granted it at nearly the top of the market. And so when it fell in value, it either became worthless if it was stock options or it became worth much less than it was when it was granted, which you would find in RSUs. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, of course, it's easy to fall out of love with equity comp if you were granted at the top of a bull market and all you've seen is equity comp become less valuable or worthless. Mm -hmm. So those are the types of folks that I think are less likely to realize that now is the time to chase equity comp because we're in a recession or we're coming close to one. But even going back to your Airbnb example for a second, I was thinking about where I thought you were going to go with that is the onset of the pandemic, right? So in 2020, travel completely halted. No one was going anywhere. Everyone was canceling their Airbnb to the point that I can't remember what Brian Chesky has said that the number was. They ended up having to eat as a loss to make people whole on canceling their reservations. But it was like at least a billion dollars. And if I worked there at the time, I'm thinking, oh my God, the ship is sinking. And I have all this equity in this company that's not going to be worth anything and what have you. And then maybe two months later, all of a sudden, Airbnb is one of the very first companies to start to turn the corner as far as recovering from that quick recession, simply because once we realized what the roadmap was, yes, we're going to be isolated for a while, but you could be isolated in a really nice flat in Costa Rica somewhere, right? Versus being at home in your basement apartment, right? So all of a sudden, Airbnb stock starts to just climb and climb and climb and looks like it can't come down. And there's two points I'm going to make in there. One, that makes a case for holding on and considering the long term, right? Mm. But two, once we do start to hit some of those triggers, as far as the shares doubling and now quadrupling and now quintupling on top of where we receive them, it's also not a bad idea to start to take some of those chips off of the table along the way, right? Because some of the people you're talking about who are disenchanted when it comes to their equity, it's because the bull market was raging in 2021. They didn't want to sell anything because they didn't want to get off that ride. And then they 
got crushed Mm -hmm. toward the end of the year, right? November, December, the tide starts to turn. And now I have this bad taste in my mouth when I think about the fact that I paid a high tax bill in 2021 on shares that aren't worth anything near what they were when I paid the taxes on them. So I got crushed then. I'm not going to make that mistake a second time. And it's the goggles that I'm seeing this thing through at this point. Yeah. Timing of equity grants really, really matters. And unfortunately, equity grants granted during bull markets at the top of bull markets don't often work out too well for people, just both the drop in value and any tax liability you had to pay. However, the recession is the best time to go after equity comp. And so I think it provides a new opportunity to actually get it right Mm -hmm. because timing is so much of this. Timing is so much of this. So considering what you do in your day job, right, you run an organization that teaches these online classes to folks all around their equity. Is there a way to make people more aware of the opportunity to get more aggressive with their strategy and in turn make more money when bear market cycles like this happen? Well, you know, this is something that led to us having this podcast. I was lamenting that the mainstream media never seems to take this conversation on. I wish I could go on Good Morning America Mm -hmm and do a mini class on stock options and RSU. So people would feel start to feel more comfortable around these concepts. I really do wish mainstream media would talk more about this opportunity, but it's something they never seem to touch, whether they've deemed it you know, too complex or just not relevant to enough people. But in my view, it's relevant to everybody because if you never ask for this, everyone can ask for equity comp in their job, everybody that works for a private or public organization. So that's many, many people. That's most of America. So I do wish mainstream media would pick it up, but in spite of it not being talked about much, obviously I think the place to go is education. You can educate yourself on it. There's lots to read out there, but if you want to nail it, you can obviously come to Class Rebels Negotiating Your Equity Comp class. They run live once a month Mm -hmm. and we'll get you ahead 10 years in just a week in really feeling armed to go into a public company, a private startup, and negotiate equity comp with confidence. But outside of that, I don't see a lot of opportunities to learn this unless you're really self-motivated. Or I guess you just have to keep coming back and listening to this podcast over and over and over to get smarter about equity compensation one, but all of the things related to comp two. For sure. What I found, what I noticed at Lululemon is that people didn't get in and negotiate their equity comp, I think because they didn't have confidence that they understood it completely. And so you don't Mm -hmm. want to tip your hand looking silly by saying the wrong thing when you're trying to negotiate equity, especially on the way into that job, you're trying to look smart Mm -hmm. and capable. And so I really think a lot of the reasons people don't negotiate equity comp at all, or they just take what they're given is because they just don't have confidence around the concepts. And you know, within 25, 30 minutes, you could end up doubling or tripling your equity grant if you have the confidence to discuss that topic. What's worse is the folks who are at the upper levels of the organization who follow the path that you just said, who stand to make the most because they have the highest levels of compensation, but they also come in with the attitude of, I am supposed to know dot, 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 because I'm coming in at director of whatever, senior director of whatever, president of whatever. And so I can't look silly asking these questions or tipping my hand where those are the people best suited to have life-changing 
wealth opportunity based on how much their comp is going to be. Yeah, 100%. So then I have a little bit different question for you. You know, does the way in which the employee receives the equity, right, whether it's restricted stock units or incentive stock options, non-qualified options, or some other, you know, package, right, performance shares, whatever, does that impact the decision of whether this is the right time to get more aggressive with that strategy? I actually believe that it's not the type of equity that matters so much in getting aggressive about your strategy. I would say that you want to get aggressive, obviously, in recessions, as we've spoken about, because your strike price will be lower. And then when it comes to RSUs, the denominator they use to determine your number of RSUs will Mm -hmm. result in higher number of RSUs. You know, the timing is important to negotiate as much equity comp as you can, but I'll say always negotiate as much as you can. You don't necessarily control the type of equity comp that they're giving. So it's not like you necessarily have a choice. You always want to up it. Recessions are great times to be aggressive. But I will also add this one point. The time to be the most aggressive is actually before you work at the company, when you're in fact just a candidate that that Hmm. company really wants. Once you're inside the company, you know, unless you are a really standout engineer known for a specific thing, or I will tell you at Lululemon, we had this one run designer who, you know, we couldn't afford to have her leave because she was producing pants that were bringing in $100 million a year. For most employees, once you're inside the company, you don't have a lot of leverage after that to negotiate more equity comp. And Mm -hmm. they may give it to you in drips and drabs, but it usually doesn't turn out to be life-changing amounts of equity. The real lump sum, the real your real leverage is before you work there. And especially if you've got, you know, other job offers and you're playing Airbnb off of other job offers, that really gives you leverage mm-hmm. to get that equity comp grant up. So I would say the first grant you negotiate on your way in is going to be the one that's most impactful during your time there. You've educated me on that before. So I'm glad you remembered to slip that in there too. I think that's a really powerful little nugget of information for folks to know, especially, you know, I teed this up, but like this is, as I like to say, the place tech workers come to get smarter about their money. So one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on and to do this in front of an audience instead of you and I just having this conversation between the two of us as we initially were, you know, you teach multiple courses, as I said, all related in one way or another to the importance of owning equity. I'm wondering if, you know, for the folks who hear this message and they're bought in now, they're leaning forward in their seats or what have you, would it be your recommendation that they go in and ask their manager for more equity first thing tomorrow morning, right? I know you said the day you come in the door is your best day, but let's say I I hear you. I love it at Airbnb where I am right now. I'm not going to go somewhere else to get more, or do I save it for the next review meeting where maybe we're not in this bear market any longer? Or, you know, is there some other way that you recommend getting some additional shares under my belt? Yeah. Well, I think I would recommend for most people to drop their fear about asking for more compensation. Mm -hmm. People seem to go to a dark place about it. They're like, well, they'll retract the offer if I ask for more, or I'll lose my job one way or another if I ask for more. I don't think that's true in most cases. You know, you might get a no, but you're not going to lose a job offer or a job over it. So I think it never hurts to go ask. And I think some of the most forward-thinking tech companies out there, like if you look at Netflix, they allow people to really do a sliding scale of how much equity versus how much cash do you want to take. I've noticed that's become more popular recently. 
Absolutely. And I think that it doesn't hurt to ask those questions mid-job if you want to up your equity quotient. I think it shows you as, you know, a resourceful, enterprising employee that's paying attention to the market. So the worst you're going to get is no, that's not available right now, but at least you tried. And I do think forward-thinking tech companies or any public company, even private startups are thinking about how to offer more equity given the opportunity right now. So I take your point and I want to even take it a step further because you made me realize something else that's probably good to share here, which is the fact that even after you come in the door and you work for the company, it's a good idea to still stay on top of how the company thinks about and treats its equity compensation structure Mm -hmm. because it is subject to change, right? It says that also in your equity grant document, this is all subject to change. And what I'm thinking about is like Coinbase, I know, for example, changed the vesting timetable and also changed to a sliding scale, right? Mm -hmm. Lyft is another one that they changed the scale of what counts as cash and what counts as restricted stock and allow you to kind of choose your own adventure like you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But if you're somebody who was there for like five years, you might not even be thinking about it. The email comes in from HR and you just kind of ignore it and go on about your business. But I think, you know, to take your point a step further, it's really important to pay attention to those kind of updates as they come and not just brush them off as, you know, announcements that don't really need to be thought about because you're already in the pool and you're doing your thing. It's really important just to check in and make sure that you still understand what the policies and procedures are. And if anything's changed, that could work in your favor. That's true. And, you know, into stock option and RSU plans, there is built in some discretion for the board to change things about the plan. But in your RSU agreement or stock option agreement, I like to remind people that is a contract that the company is bound by. So these things aren't a gift. They're a contractual liability for the company. And something we always talk about is having all your ducks in a row, your paper in safe places, because Mm -hmm. my direct experience, and I use these stories in class, is that if you have options that become valuable, you may be in a situation where you have to enforce certain things and you have to rely on that contract. And I think it's really important to know for employees that this is not a gift that can be clawed back necessarily at any time. There's rules around this Mm -hmm. and there's a financial contract the company is bound by. So I had a situation where my Lululemon stock options were going to be granted in two tranches, one immediately and one a year after I worked there. Mm -hmm. Well, the year after I worked there, the board forgot to approve my grant. And so, you know, management casually said, well, they'll approve it at the next board meeting. Well, what was happening between one quarter and the next is that the stock was increasing 50%. Wow. So my strike price would have been so far up that it, would have shaved off $250,000 off of my value. And so, of course, I pulled out my trustee contract and said, actually, you promised the grant on this month, on this date. And so one way or another, you have to make me whole. And they did. And I know that I was the only employee that got that treatment because I took out my financial contract and was like, hey, that was missed by most everybody who was in that situation. So Yeah, those things are... They're usually like your lease document is the the analogy that I use where, you know, you you sign the thing on the day you move in and all you're thinking about is moving your stuff into your new apartment. And then all of a sudden, a year later, something breaks and the building says they're not going to fix it. And then you have to scramble to figure out where you put that daggone document and what it actually says. It's similar to that. 
Yeah. The board, you know, the company has some discretion to change a few things, but at the end of the day, there is a financial contract there and it's enforceable against the company. And I know you still got a job there and you want to be careful at how you do that. But the more you understand Mm -hmm. stock options, the better position you are to ensure that you derive the true value from them. And the scenario that I just described at Lululemon, I think is probably a common one, happens all the time. Yeah. Startups are very fluid, to say the least. And so a lot of times it's kind of just like, you know, just work with us here. Just work with us on this and we'll get there. And if you just nod and smile and don't really think too much about it, you may have just lost, to your point, significant monetary value in going along with the the status quo. We hammer this point home that you want your documents in a row signed, executed by the company and by you and in mm-hmm. a safe place. And I know that sounds so boring, but it won't be boring when your stock options become valuable and you need to check on things to make sure that you're compensated properly. Yeah. So I want to turn the ship a little bit in this conversation and go back to something that you initially started talking about, which was the fact that, unfortunately, there have been you know several thousand folks in the tech industry who have experienced layoffs recently, and many of whom, I would assume, received equity as part of their comp structure, right? It's a pretty common way to get paid in this industry. Is there something specific that you see as the opportunity for them to be strategic about their equity? Well, if you were granted RSUs at a company, let's say Google, they grant RSUs there, to the extent you vested, you know, one or two years worth of your RSUs, those shares are yours to keep legally. There's no clawback mechanism. So I would say, hold on to those as long as you feel like you believe in Google, right? You think there's an upside, you know, in the next Mm -hmm. five years, 10 years, or you can sell them. So RSUs, you know, once you vest into them, they're yours. There's no clawback Mm -hmm. mechanism. But with stock options, when you're laid off, there is a decision to make. When it comes to stock options, if you've vested, you know, say two years out of your four years and you have a number of stock options that are vested, the tricky thing here is that you only have 90 days to make a decision Mm -hmm. on whether to exercise them. And in most cases, employees basically exercise and sell in the same moment, wherever the stock price seems to be, because they don't want to come up with the aggregate exercise price, which could be like $40,000 out of their pocket. Also, a tax liability can accrue right away. So I would say, you know, not so much that this is a strategy, but you actually have to act one way or another. You have to actively, with your stock options, exercise them, exercise and sell them, or decide that you're walking away from them completely. But if they were in the money, you would never. You would just exercise and sell. Sure even if you didn't love the stock price that day. But if you really see, you know, long-term appreciation for the company and you're willing to take a bit of risk, you could go out of pocket within the 90 days, exercise your stock options and hold them, but you'll probably face a tax liability on top of, you know, exercising your shares. So not a lot of people are going to do that. So essentially just know that you have 90 days once you're cut to usually buy and sell. So exercise your options and then sell. If they're in the money, don't walk away from them. But there are even companies out there now, we've had, I think, two of them already on this particular show that will provide you liquidity to purchase those shares so that you're not having to miss out on the opportunity that is the spread between your strike price and your grant price, right? So 
that's incredibly generous of companies to do that. I've never seen well, that. Not the company you work for. These are oh. separate entities out there that yeah. they have a financial interest, right? Some of them yeah. will step into your place and buy the shares from you at a discount. Mm-hmm. Some of them will come alongside of you and they take a percentage of whatever the upside is when you ultimately sell. Some of them will charge you interest traditionally on those dollars because they know you're good for it because they're holding those shares in custody. So one way or another, they'll they'll be made whole. So no, these are not benevolent yeah. employers who are saying, we want to make sure that we're doing the right thing by you. These are companies that have a financial interest one way or another in you holding on to those shares and being able to take that ride. That makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> and are you talking about, I'm like, sir, I've never heard companies do that for their employees. So who are some of the companies that are buying stock options off of departing employees? Yeah. So we've had a couple of them on the show in the past. And so I'm like feeling bad that I can't even remember off the top of my head each one, but I know Equity B is one of them. They have a little bit of a unique strategy. SecFi is another one. We actually had them on, I think it's episode 37 with Vijay Piyawazdi. So companies like that will come in and take a seat right next to you. And whenever you decide to liquidate and get out of that position, that's when they get paid. Or they just charge you some nominal interest rate, you know, 10, 12, 15%, whatever it is. I don't know. I'm just making up a number off the top of my head. But they'll just charge you interest like a traditional bank loan. And they know you're good for it because it's secured against your shares. So in those kinds of situations, at least you're not having to sell and exercise right in the moment together. Give up a majority of what you would have gained in paying the taxes like you're talking about. At least this way you get to keep your seat on the bus and see what happens long term with those shares that you've accumulated. Mm -hmm. So another question I had for you, you know, I wrote an article for the Tech Money blog, I don't know, early last year sometime about how ESPPs become more attractive in a bear market, you know, basically applying the same logic you ran through earlier about getting more bang for your buck, essentially. Are there any other ways that you see as an opportunity for folks to be strategic and load up on additional shares when that time is right? Well, with employee share purchase plan, so I, I love talking about this topic too, because oftentimes you see employee share purchase plan opportunities in public companies. And usually ESPP is offered to everybody in the company. You don't necessarily have to be at director level or VP or above, right? Oftentimes you only see stock options RSUs granted at a certain level, but ESPP is generally offered to everybody in the company. And what I saw, you know, at Lululemon is the more junior employees were taking advantage of the employee share purchase plan. And what happens here, if you're not familiar with it, is in employee share purchase plans, usually you can contribute every other week, you know, 3%, 6%, 9% of your paycheck towards going to buy, you know, your company's shares. And then the company will often... For every two shares you buy, the company will buy you one share. It could be framed that way, or it could be framed as you can buy the company's shares at a discount. A deal like you're never going to get anywhere else. And so, you know, when it comes to employee share purchase plan, I saw people at Lululemon, again, have life-changing outcomes just by being involved in the SPP because they were buying, buying, buying when the stock price was low and then it accelerated so quickly. And so in times like this, If you've only been contributing 3% of your paycheck every week to buying the company's shares at a discount, 
in a recession because you can buy so much at a lower price, I would kick that up to, you know, your max, like your 9% Mm -hmm. of your paycheck. That's an opportunity as well. Always an opportunity to just go back and ask for more stock options or, or RSUs. You may feel that you've risen in the company enough to be eligible for that. You have to ask. Nothing good is ever really given to you. I feel like you really have to keep pushing away, chipping away at these kinds of requests. The one thing I would also throw in there from a timing perspective, like you're talking about, the majority of people who are coming back to the table and trying to renegotiate anything are all asking for additional cash. Mm. At a time when tech companies are trying to become more efficient, to use Mark Zuckerberg's new favorite word, and they're trying to right-size their staffing, that's the reason we're seeing tens of thousands of people, according to you know layoffs.fyi, being cut out of the total employee population. It's because that compensation, that cash compensation is such a drag on bottom line Mm -hmm. profits. But by going back and saying, I'd like additional stock instead, you're actually more likely to get a sympathetic ear or a interested party where cash, they immediately see this is going to go against my P&L at a time I'm told to be more lean. But if you're asking for more shares that are going to exist in the equity pool anyway, it's less of a yeah. ask, right? I totally agree with you. And actually, I think this is true at any time, you know, recession or otherwise. Asking for more cash from a company, I think you run into a harder brick wall mm-hmm. trying to up that. And even if you up it, it won't be material. Whereas when you try to push up against the equity that they're offering, that seems to be more elastic everywhere. There's a little bit more wiggle room. And why it's more important to get more equity is there's simply no cap to the upside of what that could become worth. Mm-hmm. You know, negotiating 10,000 more shares versus 10,000 more dollars, that's a lifetime of difference right there if the company does well. So that's true. And that's an experience we've pulled out from people in our negotiating for equity comp class is they found just negotiating for equity versus cash, that was just an easier play than asking for more dollars at any time in the cycle. So one other thing I'll ask, and I want to make sure that I'm being cognizant of the fact that, you know, we've been talking all this time about all the positives of doubling down during a bear market, right? But what are the legitimately good reasons not to do this in your mind? Well, you really never know when we've hit the market bottom. So Mm -hmm. even while we're saying, well, right now is a great time, we're in a recession, there's nothing preventing, you know, the stock in the company that you've just negotiated a job with from falling even further. There's nothing to Mm -hmm. say we're at Mm -hmm. the bottom, you know, now's the time. So if you take an offer that includes more equity, less cash, and turns out we're nowhere near the bottom and that stock keeps falling and falling, then perhaps you may have missed out on some cash you could have had. But I think you got to ask yourself, is this a risk worth taking? Mm -hmm. This is not such a risky thing to take a little more equity and less cash. Knowing that we might not be at the bottom it could have further to fall, which would make your equity less valuable or worthless. But these are the risks we take for the upside. Fair enough. Yeah. And also, you know, you could always just sell it if the equation doesn't go the direction we want. Let's say you listen to this episode the moment it's released, we're still in a bit of a recessionary period. You decide to ask for those shares. They've got a year vesting on them. You turn around next year and the year releases that first tranche of shares and it's basically flat from where you were initially when you requested it. You could always just sell it. So it's not as if, you know, the cash disappears. Mm-hmm. It still has a 
tangible cash component the moment you decide to go into your broker's website and sell it. So as I get ready to round out this episode and bring us to a close, what would be your main message to anyone listening to this who has become disenchanted with the idea of owning equity now that a recession has become sort of imminent and we've fallen into a bear market where all of the financial media is telling you the doom and gloom story Mm -hmm. and we've all started to tell it to each other enough that it's there, it's in the ether. It's like, you know, a fog, if you will, over us essentially. Yeah, my main message is this. If you want to test out the thesis of what I'm saying without risking anything, I would say go ahead and watch Airbnb for the next couple months <laughs> and put yourself in the shoes of an employee that joined in December at the bottom, 82 bucks, mm-hmm. and watch the stock for a couple more weeks, a couple more months, and see what happens. I really do think that if you are joining a fairly solid tech company right now, Airbnb, Mm -hmm. Meta, Google, Amazon. I think you're going to see those companies recover fairly quickly out of this recession. And a lot of wealth is going to be built quickly. And if you're in the lucky enough position to be entering those companies, I think lowering your salary by 10 to 20 grand a year is absolutely a risk worth taking to find out if Mm -hmm. what I'm saying is true in terms of the fast recovery and fast wealth building that's going to be available right now. As you were talking, I was thinking about the fact that there's this disparity that I've seen between folks who work at Facebook Meta, mm-hmm. who have become disenchanted with those shares and you know, folks are threatening every day to jump ship and like get me out of here because the stock price is tumbling, tumbling, tumbling. I know Mark Zuckerberg has done a little bit to sort of right the ship recently, mm-hmm. but in the last like six months, people have been pretty upset. On the flip side, Amazon lost half its share value last year, 2022. And the Amazon employees who I know personally were all like, yeah, I'm getting more shares cheap right now. I'm good. Like, I I want to own Amazon shares long term. There's no question in my mind about it. Whereas, you know, other companies, people are like, yeah, not so much. I'm starting to wonder if the grass is greener in such and such other place where the share price might be at least a little more stable, if not more likely to go to the moon. So it's just a matter, I think, of how people think about that company internally, too. Yeah. And I think that goes back to what education is being provided to employees Mm. to set their expectations about how this works. That's a good point. Right? That difference in attitude is coming from somewhere. And so it could be in Amazon that they're getting real consistent communication like this is actually a great time if you're investing mm-hmm. in the ESPP of the company no better time than now so i think there's just a lack of education generally about equity comp but i'll tell you you know in closing out this episode how often i think of this 30 minute negotiation i had mm-hmm. with the cfo of lululemon and how any wealth i've built traces back to a 30 minute window of just a negotiation it does not trace back to like any hard labor that I did in my law job or working at Lululemon. You know, it just doesn't trace back there. It all traces back to a 30-minute negotiation about getting more stock options. That's it. So don't miss the opportunity. I think that's a powerful way to end this. So I won't even add anything else to it (laughs) for fear of messing that one up. I'll just say, you know, thanks. You know, this has been another really great episode. I appreciate you being so generous with your time here. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and or Class Rebel after this goes live? Yeah, check out classrebel.com. And 
If you want to learn more about RSUs, stock options, employee share purchase plans, then definitely come sit in our live course that runs every month, Negotiating Your Equity Comp. It's super interactive, super affordable, $99. This is a skill set that is worth your time learning. So if you can spend $99 in eight hours of your time, come join us. Live where? Where are you? Live online. We do it over Zoom. Okay. Four nights a week. Yeah. Well, this has been yet another episode of the Tech Money Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe via your favorite podcasting platform. That way, you'll be alerted immediately each week when a new episode is released. Maybe even consider sharing the link to this week's episode with your friends and colleagues. And if you really liked what you heard, be sure to leave a review. This will help make sure that more people just like you are able to find the show organically. You may connect with me, your host, on social at Malcolm on Money, and feel free to send us any questions, comments, or kudos to podcast at tech-money.com. That email again is podcast at tech-money.com. And as always, we hope that this episode of the Tech Money Podcast has helped to make you just a little bit smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out tech-money.com. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is tech-money.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge with the production, the editing, and the sound controls powered by Tech Money LLC. Thank you for listening. Information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Um...